Well, we've spent the first half of uh, 2021 going through the book of Revelation, and we are at the halfway point. We, we finished up chapter 11 just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, when you're on a sort of a, when you're drinking from a hose, now and then you have to come up for air, right? And so we're going to take a little break from the book of Revelation and resume uh, our study uh, of that book uh, in mid to late August, kind of as the fall is, is kicking off. And so what we're going to do uh, between now and then, a little summer sermon series that I'm calling Words of Life, Words of Life. And, and that title comes from uh, really from the Apostle Peter uh, in John chapter 6. Jesus has gathered this large crowd. He's just fed a whole bunch of people with a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And so he's got this big crowd and they're listening to his teaching. And the more he teaches and the more he says about eternal life and the kingdom of God, the more people start turning away. It kind of gets harder and harder to hear. And toward the end of this message, he says uh, the, the, the thing that was very striking to most ears in that day uh, and in our own age, if we're honest, whoever will eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life and many turn away. And so this chapter that began with thousands of people flocking to Jesus ends with just the 12 disciples standing around him. And we're actually reminded in John 6, and one of them was going to betray him, was a devil, it says. And so it's just the 12, and uh, Jesus says to them, why are you still here? Do you also want to go away? And Peter says to Jesus in that place, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so that declaration of Peter sort of speaking on behalf of the disciples, recognizing the words of life are on your lips, right? There's some weirdness. There's some stuff to get used to. We don't understand it all, all the time. But nevertheless, they recognize you have the words of life. And the words of life comprise the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of the kingdom of God about which Jesus preached. Indeed, the, 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 the kingdom of God and the proclamation of that kingdom was the priority of Jesus during his earthly ministry. We're told over and over again uh, in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew 9.35, it said Jesus went through all the towns and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In Mark 1.38, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So Jesus' ministry, while he was on the earth, was centered on the proclamation of the kingdom of God, what we sometimes call evangelism. That is the sharing of the good news. Evangelism comes from the Greek euangelion, which just means good news. It was an announcement of, of, of good news. And so the gospel, the evangel, if you will, is at the heart of of the ministry of Jesus. And indeed, that ministry focus of Jesus to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom has been handed down to his followers throughout the ages. And it is still the crux of our life and mission as a church. He told his disciples in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He told them in Matthew 28, 19, just before he ascended back into heaven, he said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. 
So evangelism, the proclamation of the kingdom of God is the heart of the life and mission of the church, the people of God. It is central to our task on earth and of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet, it doesn't come easy, does it? Perhaps no, no element of the Christian life feel, receives more attention because of fear, because of discomfort, because of uncertainty and insecurity. Because we know, we all have the sense, Jesus wants us to be his witnesses, right? Jesus calls us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and yet we struggle in so many ways. So many obstacles, so many challenges stand in the way of our fulfilling of that task. I think you can probably identify with that, as I do. Sharing the gospel is not as easy as perhaps we think it should be. We have lots of uh, things that stand in the way, which shouldn't surprise us when you consider the importance of it. When you consider the centrality of the task of the church and of God's people being to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, it shouldn't surprise us that the enemy would place his attention at that very point. If we can keep, if Satan and his kingdom can keep the church off of its central mission, if the church can be distracted by various internal struggles or by placing their eye on the wrong kingdom or pursuing the wrong goals, then we can keep them away from this central task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so my aim in uh, this series of messages is simply to provide some biblical encouragement and insight to help us as individuals and corporately as a church in carrying out the task of evangelism, the task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so the, the sort of premise that I'm basing the whole thing on is this recognition that gospel proclamation is central to the calling of all followers of Jesus. And the goal of the series of messages is simply this, to, to take to explore several scenes from the New Testament, from the life of Jesus and the apostles, in order to illustrate some important principles and practices of evangelism that we can learn and adopt in our own efforts uh, to proclaim the kingdom to those around us. Now, it's a departure from our usual uh, pattern. Generally, we, uh, we do a consecutive exposition where we walk through a passage of the Bible and then the very next passage and the very next passage until we complete a book or a large portion of a book. And so this is a departure from that. But I, I trust that the Holy Spirit will use the few minutes that we'll spend in each of these scenes uh, to equip and empower us for the good work that he's given us to do. So that's a little introduction to the series, Words of Life. Today, we're going to look at the scene from John chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn there. A very well-known scene, one of my very favorite uh, scenes from the Gospels, where Jesus meets with uh, a Samaritan woman, uh, or sometimes called the woman at the well. So if you turn to John chapter 4, we'll be in this, looking at this story today. I'm reading for you the first six verses, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of take it in pieces like this. John chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it says, Now when, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, 
he left Judea and and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is noon. So this is in the middle of the day, the highest uh, point of the sun's journey into the sky. And so the hottest part of the day. And he's come to this well in Samaria. Now, Jesus' choice to head for Galilee is because he's learned that uh, the Pharisees have heard about Jesus and his disciples making or baptizing more people than John the Baptist had been baptizing. In other words, this Jesus fella isn't going to go away easy, right? He's actually gaining followers. And so, of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders who come to oppose Jesus uh, more fiercely as the gospel story goes on, uh, they, of course, begin to sort of scheme against him. And so Jesus knows that if he stays in that same region, he's going to sort of invite controversy that he's not ready to deal with yet. Not because Jesus is afraid of controversy. Of course, he will walk right into that hornet's nest later when the time is right. But at any rate, because the time is not yet right for this opposition and and the confrontation that would emerge, he leaves the area and heads toward Galilee. Now, I want you to notice the phrase there where it says that he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. A simple response to that statement is, no, he didn't. Not in terms of the actual general practice of Jews in that day. By this time, there is significant uh, ethnic and social and religious uh, conflict and, and strife and prejudice between Jews and Samaritans, particularly on the part of Jews toward Samaritans. They regarded them as sort of half-breeds, like they're not true Jews, not true people of God. And so there was a lot of sort of animosity. So while going through Samaria was the most direct route to get to Galilee from Judea, actually what Jews most often did was to cross the Jordan River to the east and go up around Samaria and then cross back to the west across the Jordan to get into Galilee so that they would avoid Samaria altogether. That is actually what the Jewish people usually did when they traveled. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's actually cluing us into something. Some, there, there's, a different, there's another reason that Jesus has in his mind and in his heart that he must go through Samaria. It is not merely because it's convenient and it's the sort of simplest geographical route. It's because there is a purpose of his grace. It is a choice that leads him through Samaria specifically to carry out his mission. The language there, the Greek verb that's translated as he had to, the Greek verb is day. And it gives a sense of compulsion, right? He had to do it. But the way that John uses that verb kind of throughout his gospel is to imply a sense of sort of divine mission. When it says he must do this, it's more like in order to sort of carry out the task he'd been given, he had to do this. Just in the previous chapter, John 3, 14, Jesus had said to Nicodemus that the son of man must be lifted up. In John 9, 4, as he's about to heal uh, the man born blind, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. In John 10, 16, he says, there are other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. 
In John 20, verse 9, he is speaking, it says that in order to fulfill prophecy, that he must rise from the dead. These are not obligations like there's just no other way. These are divine missional imperatives. And it's the same thing in John 4, where it says he had to go through Samaria. The point is, of course, Jesus was always on mission. I'm going to give you four observations as we walk through this this passage uh, that might help us in our own practice of gospel proclamation. The first one is this. Jesus is always on mission. And therefore, we ought to always be on mission. There's a way of going about the sort of regular processes and rhythms of life that are intentional, that ought to be intentional as it relates to the mission that he's given us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Even things like which route we travel to get to where we're going, right? There's a way to take the most convenient route that avoids all the people, or there might be another route that we could take that might be a little less convenient, but it might provide specific opportunities that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So observation number one, Jesus is always on mission. And so he comes to this well, and he's sitting there, and he's waiting, right? So the scene is sort of set for uh, this conversation to unfold. Let's look at verse 7. We'll read down through verse 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so this scene begins where Jesus is waiting on the well And this woman of Samaria comes out in the middle of the day to draw water. And Jesus opens a conversation with her by requesting that she give him water. Give me a drink. Now, that would have been shocking and countercultural for Jesus to ask to use a Samaritan woman's drawing bucket. And she alludes to that in verse 9, where she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because as John tells us in parentheses there, uh, because Jews had no dealings with uh, Samaritans. The most literal sense of that phrase is, is that they do not use with. Jews do not use with Samaritans. So really the maybe particular taboo here was not just striking up a conversation, but it was even specifically and more audaciously the sharing of a drinking vessel, right? That's dirty, right? That's, that's not uh, acceptable for the Jewish people to do. And, the, and this woman of Samaria recognizes that immediately. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? 
And so Jesus boldly disregards the cultural and religious norms and enters into a relationship in this moment with this woman. And when he says, when she says, how is it that you could do this, right? Uh, he, he says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, I wonder how you might in your mind expect that sentence to be completed, right? Because this is no ordinary guy, right? This is Jesus, the eternal son of God in human flesh. And he's come to this woman and said, give me a drink. Now, you might expect him to say, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, we might expect you would have obeyed immediately, right? You would have obeyed. You would have complied. You would have done what I said because you recognize, oh, this is Lord of heaven and earth. I'd better do what he says, right? You might expect him to say, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would be obedient to my command. That isn't what he says. He says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given it to you. It's a total reversal of the expectation from a human perspective. He doesn't say, if you knew who it was, you would give me what I'm asking for. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give to you. Observation number two is that Jesus postures himself as a servant. He postures himself as a servant rather than a master. He would be right to posture himself as a master. He would be right to demand the allegiance and the obedience and the loyalty of this woman who was a creature who he made. He'd be right to do that. But that's not how he, that's not his heart. That's not how he postures himself. Rather than a master, he is a servant to her. I would give to you living water. As he said elsewhere, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he begins to speak a little bit more about this water that he's talking about. Of course, we start to get the picture pretty quickly that he's not talking about literal drinking water. When he says that I would have given you living water, he's not just talking about water from a well. He's talking about something else. He says, whoever drinks of the water from this spring will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that is identified in, later in John, in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, with the Holy Spirit. When it says uh, that he says something very similar there, that, that springs of water would gush up to eternal life, John tells us he said this concerning the Holy Spirit who would come, right? And so the, 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 the reference to living water that's, that wells up to eternal life is a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom he would send to all those who believe. And so he's saying here, I would give you the gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life and, and hope and, and a future in relationship with me. But she doesn't quite get it. In verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming to this well to draw, right? She, she takes him sort of literally. And in this, this statement, we start to get a glimpse into her personal pain. We start to, to see that there's a story that this woman has. And we actually start to maybe question 
Why is she out here at noon in the first place? In this culture and in this time, it was the the role of, of women to gather the water for the household for the day. And typically, the women would have done this either earlier in the morning or even at sort of sundown to gather water for the next day in order to avoid the high heat of the noonday sun. So the practice, the typical order of things would be for the woman to go out early in the morning or later in the evening. And here, this woman intentionally goes to the well at the hottest part of the day, probably because she knows the other women are not going to be there. This woman is intentionally avoiding people. And as we begin to learn about her past and her secrets and the shame that she is carrying, we'll start to understand why she may be out here in the noonday heat. Perhaps she imagines the the chatter of the women around the well if they were there at the same time, the sideways glances, the judgmental stares, and she can't handle it. She, she wants to avoid it. And so she's willing to come out at the hottest part of the day and work harder to avoid the public shame that would come through these conversations. And Jesus, of course, knows this. Jesus knows what's in her heart. Jesus knows what's in her life. And he'll begin to reveal that in these verses. Let's look at verse 16 and down to 20. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she kind of diverts his attention away from her life with a, theolo- with a theological question. Why does Jesus ask this question, or it's really a statement? Why does he say this thing, kind of calling her to do something that he knows? He knows the answer to the question. He knows that she can't really technically do what he's asking her to do. Go and call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, well, technically that's true. Technically, you're right. And so he begins to sort of reveal to her, not in public, Remember, there are not other people around her. It's just Jesus and this woman, one-on-one. And he reveals to her, I know your life. I know your sins. I know your shame. And I know your hurt. So when he says, go call your husband, she says, I don't have one. And he says, you're right to say you don't have one because you've had five of them. And actually, you're involved with a man right now that you're not married to. So there is this long list of... Uh, of relational and sexual sins that this woman has clearly committed and is continuing to commit. And Jesus exposes it, which might sound to us kind of harsh. Why would Jesus expose this woman's vulnerability and her brokenness and her sin in this conversation? And our instincts typically are far to the opposite of that, right? We're like, well, I want to try to bring the gospel to somebody, I want to stay far away from their sin. I, I don't want to, them to feel judged or condemned or that I feel like I'm better than them or something. So I stay as far away from their sin as I possibly can, right? Um, and Jesus goes right there. Jesus goes straight to 
the most sensitive and vulnerable place of her life and exposes her sin. Why? To condemn her? To embarrass her? To preach about you know, marital fidelity and sexual purity? Not at all. Jesus is after her heart. Jesus wants, Jesus is looking for a way and has found the way to get below the surface and to get straight to this woman's heart, her inner self. Right? The living water that he offers is not for the mouth, but for the heart. She will not recognize it or receive it unless he can get through her defenses and get to her heart. And so he exposes her sin in this way. And by doing that, he is actually exposing her need for true living water. He is exposing what she really needs. Because in this response, I have no husband, uh, she sort of tells the truth, right? It's sort of technically true, as Jesus says. Yeah, what you say is true. As as J.I. Packer said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And so this woman gives us sort of a half-truth. I don't have a husband, you know, technically. Um, But in doing so, she's sort of trying to cover up the truth, right? The the reality of her life. And so she's trying to deceive Jesus, and he sees right through it. The woman has had five marriages. She's been sexually involved with, with six men. And so we start to ask, what does that tell us about her? Beyond the sort of tropes of like she's just a whatever, a loose woman or a party animal or whatever. Like what, what Jesus is interested in her heart. What does it tell us about her heart? And I think it starts to show us that she desires something. She craves something that she believes will be found in men or in relationships or in uh, uh, sexual satisfaction or whatever. Right? It could be different things, but she's looking for something And she thinks this is how to find it. And clearly, time and time again, it's failing her. Marriage one didn't do it. Marriage two didn't do it. Marriage three didn't do it. Marriage four didn't do it. Marriage five didn't do it. And number six, I'm not even bothering with marriage, right? It's not doing what she wants it to do, but she is still looking for something. The old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's what she's doing. Her laundry list of failed relationships and promiscuity and social rejection and personal disgrace have led her to complete social isolation. She just lives apart from the community. She avoids people. This woman doesn't have friends. This woman doesn't have people that she can call on for help. This woman is coming to the well to draw water in the heat of the noonday sun to avoid being around other women. I wonder if you've ever felt a similar way. I wonder if you've ever felt shame, guilt, embarrassment to such a degree that it's just easier not to be around people. I don't want to go be around someone who might ask me a question that I'm uncomfortable answering. And so we just avoid people. That is an instinct of our shame. And Satan delights in that. Well, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows what's going on in her heart. He knows that she's hiding And because of that, his exposing of her sin is not for the purpose of shame, but of mercy. His heart toward her is not condemning, but compassionate. He doesn't bring up the sin of her sort of relational and marital failures to shame her, but to reveal to her 
that the nagging, never satisfied thirst for wholeness and healing that she is seeking is actually there to lead her to Jesus himself as the answer to her deepest needs. Here's the third observation about gospel proclamation. Jesus sees her sin as a misguided expression of her need for him. Jesus sees her sin as a misguided expression of her need for him. So he knows, I know what you need. I have what you need. I am what you need, right? What you need is living water. And you're searching for it in all the wrong cisterns, right? You're you're opening these broken wells and hoping that what you'll find there will satisfy. And it won't, which I think is kind of what Jesus means when he says, whoever drinks of this well will thirst again. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't boycott her. His interaction with her specific expression of sinfulness is couched in compassion. And I think that's really important for us to remember as we are seeking to engage with unbelievers in the world around us. The church sort of collectively in in America has too often viewed sinners as enemies, right? Those people out there with all of the problems rather than seeing the sadness of their spiritual brokenness and moving toward them with compassion and mercy and love. Jesus isn't afraid to bring a sinner's shame to the surface, but it's always in an effort to meet that shame with grace that runs even deeper. Let's bring the shame to the surface so we can cover it with grace. That's what Jesus is after. And may we, as his people, carry his heart toward sinners. We shouldn't shy away from conversations about sin. We shouldn't be afraid to name something as sin that is clearly sin because of the sense that we might embarrass somebody or or cause alienation. We might. It's possible that that will be an offense that, that a person can't get past. But if we have the heart of Jesus toward a sinner, that says, I see your sin as an expression that you're looking for me and you're looking in the wrong places. I see that you're looking for living water, but you're looking in the wrong, the broken wells. And perhaps even conversations about hard things and naming sin might be couched with grace and might indeed help to introduce a sinner to the grace of Christ that will cover their shame. By the way, if you think that a husband or a wife or some other human relationship will satisfy the deepest caverns of longing in your soul, you are deceived. It is only Jesus and the living water that he can provide that will bring the wholeness and peace that you crave. Look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now her response to this is very interesting. She doesn't run away. I think there's, there's some courage here, and perhaps a a, a glimpse of the fact that the Lord is moving in her mind and in her heart, that she stays in this conversation. Because she could have very easily just thought, you're just like everybody else, right? I came out here to avoid people, and here you are bringing up my shame, and walked away. But she doesn't. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, that's pretty obvious. I perceive that you are a prophet. And so then she sort of uh, turns the, the conversation to a theological conversation, right? To, to a theological topic. Look at her in verse 20. 
our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Because again, remember the difference between Jews and Samaritans at this point has led to completely different sort of structures. And the Samaritans have their own kind of version of the Bible and their own uh, systems of worship. And they have a place where they worship. And so the Jews and the Samaritans are really divided on all of these things. And so she brings up this difference. Well, since you're a prophet and since you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, let me ask you this question uh, about how people should worship and where, where do you think we should worship, right? Settle this controversy, if you will. There might be some interest. She might be legitimately interested in that uh, controversy that she brings up, but it's really a diversion in the moment. It's a, let's get this conversation onto something that's a little less uncomfortable. And so she talks about theology and Jesus engages it. Jesus doesn't go, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. That's a distraction. Let's talk about your sin. He's like, okay. We'll have a conversation now about sort of a theology of worship. (laughs) So verses 21 through 24, Jesus gives what is a very famous sort of statement on the nature of of Christian worship. He stays in the conversation and engages the issue. That's observation number four. Jesus is willing to engage the theological questions of an unbeliever. Don't think that unbelievers don't have any interest or any thoughts or any questions about God, about religion, about the Bible about Christianity, about Jesus. They may have questions. And sometimes I think we shy away from them. We're afraid to engage with theology questions. Maybe we think we're going to be exposed for like, I don't really know the answer to that. And we're afraid to say, I don't know. That actually might be one of the healthiest things you could say to an unbeliever if they ask you a question. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe we can find that out together. Maybe we can read the Bible together and look for an answer. But saying, I'm not sure, is is an okay thing to say. But instead of shying away from it or, you know, batting it down and going, no, we're going to stay on the topic of your sin and deal with your sin, he follows. He is willing to engage the theological questions of an unbeliever. And that very fact implies, I think, that, that he has a missional purpose, right, in having this conversation. I think if Jesus thought this paragraph on a theology of worship is going to be a waste of time, he probably wouldn't have done it. So I think he is still trying to navigate to her heart and to apply the need uh, or apply the the, the balm of the gospel of the living water that he can provide to the need uh, in her heart, the shame that she feels. And so he's not getting off on a rabbit trail, you know, like some professor who you can will endlessly talk about a hobby horse. You know, like I I have teachers like like, okay, if if you get her talking about rabbits. She will go forever and ever, right? So literally just bring up anything uh, that has to do with a rabbit and she's off, you know. Um, Maybe you've had teachers like that too. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not like, oh, good, I love the theology question. Let's go. He's engaging with this woman where she is, trying to reach her heart. And so we should keep our eyes open to how this teaching on worship might be understood in light of his intention to get to this woman's heart. And to open her up to the need for living water. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. So she asks this question. Our fathers worship on this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is where people should worship. And Jesus said to her, verse 21. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Meaning course, that the Jews were originally God's people. They were the ones that God had sent the prophets to and his word to and the law to. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he highlights the sort of already and not yet tension of the kingdom of God, right? There, there, there's a time coming and is now here, right? It, it, it's coming in the age after I've ascended to heaven, right? This age when uh, the Father will seek worshipers and people worship the Spirit and truth. And it's now here because I am here, right? So Christ is the one who brings the kingdom. So he expresses that tension. The kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet fully realized. And the gist of what he says here is that the the questions about the location of worship and all that, which mountain is the right place, which temple should we go to, are basically obsolete. The centrality of the temple will be done away. Right? Generations of Old Testament law and practice will be uh, made obsolete. And the church, as the people of God, will be the new temple, irrespective of location. Right? So, so the New Testament turns worship away from forms and locations to the heart. So when he says that true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth, he's saying that, that worship, the essence of worship, is to be brought to God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? The way for your worship to be acceptable to God is not about which mountain you're on. It's about whether you are trusting in Jesus Christ. So if your faith is in Jesus, then your worship is made acceptable to God, right? That's kind of what he's, what he's getting at. That's the theology of worship in a nutshell that he presents here. Worship isn't about the forms and the locations. Worship is about belief in Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, as the King. And if we come to him on the basis of that truth and with hearts that are convinced of that reality and submitting to him, then our worship is made acceptable to him and the exterior things don't matter. Well, how does that teaching tie into Jesus' goal of opening this woman's heart to living water. He's gotten below the surface, you know, by exposing her sin. He's exposed her true need and desire for for living water by bringing up her string of husbands. Like you've been looking in the wrong places. There's something else that you really need that you haven't quite realized yet. And now he shows that there are no physical, geographical, or spiritual barriers to her receiving this living water. So this theology of worship, from her perspective, may have been a bit of a rabbit trail. It may have been a bit of a diversion. But Jesus has used it and repurposed it to get right to the point. There's nothing standing in the way of you receiving living water from Jesus. That's what he's getting at. This theology of worship makes the decisive point that racial, social, religious, economic, gender distinctions cannot keep a person away from becoming a true worshiper. True worship comes from a heart that recognizes Jesus as Savior. And that's it. And in fact, Jesus says the Father is seeking such people, right? The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Did you know that the Father seeks people? You know that God is after 
your heart. God is pursuing you to get your attention, to get your heart, to draw you to him. Remember Jesus' intentionality throughout this. He had to go through Samaria, right? He had to wait by this well at this time. There's this missional intentionality, this purpose that Jesus always has. And that is a fulfillment of the mission that the Father gave him to seek and to save the lost. Could it be that the Father is seeking you to worship him through faith in Jesus and so receive living water to satisfy your thirsty soul? Well, she responds in verse 25. Let's look at these last few verses. Verses 25 through 30. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We're going to pause right there. So she's beginning to get it. I think she's starting to see who Jesus really is. And she responds with sort of an implied question. She doesn't state it as a question. She states it uh, like she knows. When Messiah comes, he will explain these things to us. But there's an implied question in there like, is that you? Like, I think maybe it's you. And Jesus gives her the plain uh, response that she was looking for. I who speak to you am he. And in the, the Greek construction here, the words that are emphasized in that sentence are I am. But you probably recognize the significance of that as a reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to the people of Israel. He says, I am he. And so he identifies himself clearly with God and he answers this woman's implied question by saying, I am the sent one, the one that God has sent into the world. And specifically, perhaps she sees in this moment, the father sent me to you. And here we are. And just then the disciples come back. Gotta love the timing of the disciples. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So they, they're smart enough to sort of keep that to themselves. And so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples return and the woman leaves, right? So the conversation is has sort of reached its climax and, and it's kind of come to an end. And so she leaves. I want you to notice two things specifically about her leaving, about how she left. Number one, she left her water jar. That's a detail you could easily miss. But that's really important. Why is she at the well in the first place? To get water. You have to have water, right? She needs water for the day, and this is the time that she's going to do it. And that water bucket is probably not, like, easily replaceable. So she's come to the well at the hottest part of the day to avoid the shame of community and the public. And she's come to get water. And now, when the conversation with Jesus is over, and she's come to realize, you are the Messiah, you're the one who offers me living water, she forgets all about the water. She's gone. She's left the water jar behind She went to the well for a drink of water, but she's leaving the well with water for her soul. It's as though the the physical provision of the water from this well doesn't even matter. 
She's found in Jesus' invitation the living water that quenched the thirst of her desperation and brokenness. And so the water jar, as it were, is useless to her. Oh, that we would leave our buckets, that we would leave our water jars behind. The empty caverns that we drink from over and over again, looking for satisfaction, hoping for joy, and coming up dry again and again. Leave your bucket behind and take from Jesus the living water that alone will satisfy your thirsty soul. He's the only one that provides this living water. And the second thing I want you to notice about her leaving is where she goes. She doesn't go home. She goes into the town, right? She left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, right? She went straight to the town to speak with the people that she has been deliberately avoiding probably for years. She's coming to the noonday heat well to avoid people, and that's her pattern And now here she goes, having met Jesus, having received the living water through faith in him, and she runs straight into the community that she's been afraid of so that she can tell them, I've met the one with living water. Her shame is so removed, so undone, that she is confident. Not only does Jesus know everything I've ever done, he loves me. Like no one ever has. I can't see your heart. But Jesus can. I don't know the the burdens, the disgrace, the shame that you're carrying around, maybe running from. But Jesus does. And just as Jesus saw the brokenness of this woman and generously offered her the gift of living water, he offers the very same gift to you today. Any who will trust in Jesus Christ and leave the water jar of these failed attempts to find completion and joy and satisfaction behind will find living water. Let's pray.